If you have a card sitting in your seat or one in the seat next to you, will you grab that card? We're going to pray over the names on those cards here in just a second. Uh, But before we do that, um, we want to pray over our kids. Uh, Every week about this time in our gathering, we take just a minute to pray over our kids. And we pray for our kids that are in this room. And we also pray for our kids like my kids that are a long, long way away. So if your kids aren't here, we want to make sure that we pray for those guys too. I asked Lily if um, she'd be willing to pray over our kids that are here. So if you're around one of our kids, why don't we huddle up around those guys and lay our hands on them and um, Lily's going to pray. That sound good? All right, let's do it. Dear God, I pray that you look over these kids as the elementary school go to their classes and as they're going through their day just to be able to think about you and absorb your word and live in your presence. I pray that you look over them and guide them as they grow and as they're off and about doing their own things, just that you're there as a guiding hand and protecting of them. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Let's give our kids a big hand and uh, we'll send them out this way. Our middle schoolers are going to stay in here with us this morning. That is not a big round of applause, y'all. I'm sure you cheered louder yesterday watching football. Well, I asked Lily to stay uh, just for a minute. Um, We want to take a a moment and pray over our students and our leaders that are at Fuel. Uh, As Sunny mentioned a few minutes ago, there's probably about 200 of our folks that are up at uh, Camp Highlands. I got to be there yesterday with them. They were having a blast. Um, Lily has been to Fuel and to Winter Freeze, um, which is our winter retreat, a bunch of times. And the card that you have in front of you gives you a couple of ways to pray specifically. Um, And there's a specific name on that card. Uh, I got Lydia Stallings' name on my card. And there's a couple of ways that we can pray. But because Lily's here this morning, I asked if she could just share with us, maybe give us a little bit more insight on how we could pray for those kids seeing uh, it wasn't long ago when you were there. Um, So tell us a little bit more about how we could be praying for those kids and the leaders that are at Fuel today. So, okay, so Fuel and Winter Freeze, so these camps are so much fun. There's so many activities, such great bonding experiences. And I think one way we can pray for the children there and the the leaders is that they can be aware of God's presence and be able to absorb his word while they're at the camp. So be aware of God's presence and to absorb what's going, absorb God's word. Uh, yesterday when I was there, like there was so much going on. Kids are bouncing off the walls and they're moving fast. And then there's times just to be still, right? They had a quiet time um, where they just had alone time with God. I think they called it quiet time where it was just them. You remember that? Yes. And they also have these little papers for your quiet time to like read the scripture and to, it's a great time for reflection. And they give those out to you, and kids will go off in their separate areas and read and pray. And it's, it's an amazing time just to be in the presence of the Lord. Yeah, I uh, walked in. There's 200 kids and uh, leaders spread across the camp, and the camp was silent. All these kids were just having quiet time with the Lord going through this little devotional, just like you said. So they'd be aware of the presence of the Lord and be able to absorb these truths. We talked about community. Talk about the importance of community real quick. So like, okay, the whole weekend, you're, it feels like you're leading up to this one moment when the last night of Fuel, you come and you worship. And this night is so communal and everyone's there, everyone's worshiping. 
and you just feel the presence of God there. And so all of the whole, the whole weekend, while you're having fun, while you're praying with your small group, you're so connected with the people around you and God that it's, it's amazing to witness and to be there. The power of community is a big deal, right? Family's a big deal. We know that. I know that about your family, uh, your crew over there. Family's a big deal. Faith family's a big deal. I would love for us to pray. There's some kids who feel disconnected. There are some kids that don't know where to go. They don't have a friend. I would love for us to pray for that sense of family, that sense of unity and oneness for our kids that are away. And... Um, for the kids, for our family that, that, that are here. So I'm just going to give you a minute um, to pray as God might lead you to pray for the name on the card. And then I did ask Lily if, oh no, I said I was going to pray, didn't I? Yeah, I said I was going to pray. <laughs> then I said I was going to pray over the kids that are at camp. Sorry, I, was gonna, I know I was going to spring that on you. Sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> We've been friends a long time, so I could spring stuff on you and you'd be okay with it. Yes, sir. Um, so let's just take a minute. And uh, then I'll pray. I'll pray over these guys. Um, let's pray together. God, I do. I pray for Lydia Stallings. And I pray for, um, just as Lily said, that she would be able to absorb the truth that she's hearing, the grace that she's experiencing, and that it would um, find deep, deep roots in her. And I pray that she'd find family. I pray that she'd find connection. Um, nothing more important, I think, than to have some good people around us cheering us on. And so I pray representatively for Lydia, but I pray that for all of the kids there and their leaders. And I pray that same prayer for us here in this room and those that are watching online, Lord, that we would absorb your truth, that we would experience your grace, and that we would live in community, that we would live in unity and oneness, that we as a faith family would be one just as the Trinity is one in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. God, thank you um, for my girl Lily. I pray blessings over her and her family today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. If you have your Bibles, grab them and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to start in Hebrews 10. We're going to jump back to Hebrews 6 in just a minute, um, where we'll spend the majority of our time. But if you have your Bibles, Hebrews 10. I asked Lily for one more favor, um, and she said yes. So um, I asked Lily earlier in the week, or asked her last week, if she would record a video answering this question, how do you approach Jesus in prayer? Before we dive into the text, I want you to hear her answer. How do you approach Jesus in prayer? So when 
I approach Jesus in prayer, I like to be conversational because I believe it allows me to be more open and vulnerable during my prayer time. <laughs> That's it. I love that. The simplicity of your answer, Lily. How do you approach Jesus in prayer? She said, conversational. I can be open and honest and vulnerable. I think you said vulnerable in her relationship with Jesus. So I'm just going to ask you that same question. How do you approach Jesus in prayer? When you pray, what's your posture? Maybe it's reverently. You know, maybe it's cautiously. Okay, Lord. Maybe it's confidently. We were encouraged in Hebrews. Approach the throne of grace with confidence. And then you would receive mercy in your time of need. Mercy and grace in your time of need. We just sang, uh, I'm desperate for you. Maybe some of us approach prayer in that sort of desperate posture. In the scripture that we're going to read today, the word of prayer is not going to be referenced. Now, the scripture is going to take us to a lot of different places today. And some of the scripture that we're going to look at is really hard stuff. I trust that where it brings all of us at the end of this message is to a place of prayer. So if you have your Bibles, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, we're going to look just really quickly at some context for Hebrews 6. These are verses 32 through 35. Hebrews 10, 32 through 35. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence it will be richly rewarded. These guys have suffered and they have suffered together. The writer of this letter at times can be really hardcore. Like he says some things that are really hard. Like last week, if you were here, we were reading Hebrews 5. He was just really pushing these guys. But look at what they went through. They stood side by side when they were mistreated. They were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. They joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. Anyone here give me an amen to that one? Mm. These guys suffered together and they really loved each other. And they loved each other really, really well. We don't know much about the writer of this letter, but we know enough to know that he knows these guys. He knows their story. He knows their suffering. Some historians believe that what's being noted here in Hebrews 10 could be referencing the persecution of Christians under Nero. Some others believe that maybe he's referring to the suffering caused when Claudius kicked out Jewish converts, uh, when he kicked them out of Rome. Whatever the case, this writer knew that these people were suffering. And in suffering... The writer is calling them to hold fast, to persevere. Just because your circumstances seem dire doesn't mean that it's time to throw away your confidence in him. 
That's what he's saying. And I know that some of you find yourselves in seasons of suffering. And let me just encourage you. God is at work. God is always at work. And there are people around you, people in this church, who are willing to stand with you, who are willing to join you, who are willing to suffer with you, to suffer for... There are actually people in this church who are willing to suffer for you, to travail. Now, if you have your Bibles, let's flip back to chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6. And we're going to look at the first three verses with that context in mind. Let's look at the first three verses in Hebrews 6. We'll work through this chapter or the rest of this message. So therefore, he's talking about the first five chapters really. Therefore, let us move beyond elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Instruction about cleansing rites or the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. The writer is advocating for spiritual growth. Again, if you were here last week, you heard the call in Hebrews chapter 5 for believers to grow. It's time to grow, he's saying. We got to move on past the easy stuff. It's time to grow. And he's saying here, it's time to move beyond all the basics. Now, just remember real quick, it's important to remember that these first readers of this letter were Jewish converts. Their whole life before coming into a relationship with Jesus was religion. It was all about rules and regulations. And he's saying it's time to move on from the basics. It's time to go deeper. Now, I don't know if you noticed, um, but he calls these elementary teachings. He calls these the basics. Uh, instructions about whether things are clean or unclean or the laying on of hands. Uh, some believers thought the only way to, some early believers thought the only way to receive the Holy Spirit is if someone prayed over you, they laid hands on you. Uh, the whole idea of the resurrection and uh, eternal judgment. This guy, the writer is saying, let's move beyond those elementary teachings. Just real quick. Do those sound like elementary teachings to you? Uh, that whole thing that we just read, does that sound elementary to you? I mean, that, I don't know, that doesn't sound elementary to me. By this time, uh, chapter 5, he says, by this time, you should be teaching this stuff, right? We read that last week. Not having to go back to it time and time again, revisiting the same old thing time and time again. And again, I think he's just encouraging them. It's time to move in. It's time to move deeper still in your relationship with God and with one another. These guys don't need more knowledge. They need to live into the knowledge they already have. As I was writing this message, I was thinking about the elementary stuff and I was thinking, well, if this is elementary stuff, what does middle school stuff sound like? You know, uh, anybody got kids in middle school uh, or anyone remember middle school? Anybody still trying to forget middle school? <laughs> Ruby, <laughs> still trying to forget middle school? Yeah. Now, I remember a lot about middle school. I don't remember a ton of what I learned theologically in middle school, but I can remember middle school. We moved from Phoenix to Southern California when I was in middle school. 
like in the middle of the seventh grade year. And I was introduced to punk rock. My life will never be the same. And when we got there, my mom walked out on us when I was in middle school. And we got kicked out of the church when I was in middle school. And then there was my own secret sins that began in middle school. So if elementary teachings, like eternal judgment, uh, what would middle school teachings sound like? What would middle school teachings be like? I, I can only go with trust in the midst of suffering. Maybe middle school teaching would be around forgiveness. Forgiveness for the person who originally taught you how to forgive. Or maybe grace. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Out of the fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. John 1.16. Now that may sound elementary to some of you. But to fully live into those truths of Jesus, I'm going to need to grow up, maybe even move out of elementary school. Because once in a while, some of those middle school wounds can get touched. Once in a while in our everyday, ordinary lives, some of those middle school wounds can get touched and they can show up even in the here and now. Let me give you just a really quick illustration, best I can. This is a simple one. When I was in middle school, I played high school soccer played with some older kids. I wasn't very good. I don't know how I ended up with these older kids, but I ended up with these older kids. And uh, one night during practice, I fell and broke my arm. And it wasn't just a break. It was one, a compound fracture. And my funny bone was literally sheared off of my elbow. It was terrible. It was terrible. Uh, it was definitely not funny. There was nothing about it. And pins and screws and casts and PT and I had to miss the whole season and everything like that. That was way back in middle school. But today, if I touch that, I'm totally healed, right? That was a long time ago. I got a little scar there, but totally healed. But today, if I get touched in that place at just the right place, that wound is still tender, I mean, it's been all of these years, but if I hit it or it gets bumped or just the other day, my older daughter and I were goofing around and she touched it and I was like, ow. That's what happens with some of our wounds from our past. They're healed and you're whole and you're holy, but then something happens and it just gets touched and we respond the way we did when we were in elementary school or middle school. To live into this truth, to grow into maturity is in that spot to stop and say, Lord, meet me here. Lord, meet me here. I'm tempted to blame. I'm tempted to self-protect. I'm tempted to wallow in my wounds. Lord, meet me here. I'm so tempted to withdraw or drift or self-protect or to be even more courageous in that space and to call a friend and to bring them along into that place of hurt. I think that's maturity. And verse 3 says, and God permitting, we will do so. Right? There's a partnership here. You can't go it alone. God's at work in this with us. He's always at work. And he's inviting us to join him in maturing. Now, verse 4 through verse 8, going to take us in a different direction. So stay with me. Here we go. It's impossible 
For those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, received the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Okay, if you're following along, we just jumped on a rocket ship and went from middle school to grad school, literally. We're talking about what some people would refer to as the doctrine of eternal security. This little section is going to take some serious maturity. If you read this with the middle school mind, you're going to be in serious trouble. If you read this without any context, it sounds terrifying. The language is so strong. It is impossible. It is impossible in that whole long list of things, you know. It is impossible. And then it ends by saying, to be brought back to repentance. That's so strong. This passage of scripture, along with a handful of other scriptures that sound similar to this passage, have divided denominations. This passage and passages like it have divided churches. This passage and passages like it have divided families. Where you fall on this doctrine has all kinds of implications. The most elementary part of this conversation really is about our eternal security. I'm just going to give you three really quick views of this doctrine, of this passage of scripture. The first is uh, a hypothetical view. Uh, some of you guys might remember, anybody remember the pastor D. James Kennedy? Uh, he's a pastor of a big church down in Florida. Dr. Kennedy said, this is a bit like uh, irony that he used in chapter 5. There's this sort of hypothetical meaning around the language that the writer's using. So that's one, that's one way to look at the passage. Another way to look at the passage is um, maybe uh, people who have a more conservative view like Luther or Calvin, um, maybe people who are raised Baptist, they would say, well, that's true, but it's not true. They would say it's true, but it's not true. The argument would say, well, one person, once they're saved, they're always saved. So if a person fell away, they were actually not a Christian to begin with. They may have sound like a Christian or they may have taught like a Christian, but they weren't actually a Christian. And then there are others like John Wesley, uh, Wesleyan, Arminian view would be, they would just say that's true. And that's what can happen if you don't stay in uh, step with Jesus, you can fall away. When I read passages like this, actually when I read any kind of passages uh, in Scripture, anytime I open my Bible, I usually ask myself a couple questions. I kind of pull myself out of the verses and to a bigger space and say, okay, what does this text tell me about the character of God? Okay, okay, okay. Before I dive into what this actually means, God, what does this tell me about your nature? Or thirdly, how do I see your love at work in the midst of these verses? Then I'm going to try, out, try to figure out what these verses mean. 
from there, it's important to jump into the, what the verses are saying and the context of the verses. So I want to just remind you, these first readers of this letter were Jewish converts. So they would know the history of the Jews. They would know that there was a whole generation of people who didn't make it into the promised land. All of these guys started out strong. They left Egypt. Moses was their leader. But an entire generation died before they ever met ever made it into the promised land. So this idea of falling away, they would understand. It would be common to them. They'd get this language. But here's the good news. And here's where I land on this. I want to make sure you get this. This theology is really important. It's super important. It's really important. But here's the good news. The good news, according to Hebrews, is we are not the judge. The good news, according to Hebrews, is we are not given the responsibility to determine if and when someone has fallen away. That's not our job. That's not our responsibility. We don't sit in the seat of judgment. We simply do not have the capacity to make that kind of judgment like, oh, that person has fallen away. I'll just say this. There's been a couple people in my life, people close to me. Uh, when I've thought, man, I don't know about that guy. I don't know if there's ever a way, right? In my own life, I can remember a time where I was like, maybe I'm just out. Maybe, I've just, uh, uh, maybe I'm just so far, 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 far from God. I want you to know that God is at work. God is always at work in your lost son or your lost brother-in-law and your lost coworker who seems so, so far away, God is at work. God is always at work. And we are not the judge of their lostness. Our call is to love God and to love others. Our call is to pray for the salvation of our neighbors and the nations. That theology is crystal clear. Now, let's keep going. He sort of softens it a little bit here, verses 9, and then on down through verse 15. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. So he's kind of softening it a little bit. The things that have to do with salvation, he says. God is not unjust, and he will not forget your work and the love that you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be realized. We don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you descendants. And so... After waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Writer kind of softens it a little bit. In fact, in verse 9, he's, he softens it a lot. He says, dear friends, dear friends. He calls them beloved. Hey, beloved, he says. I'm not really worried about you guys falling away. But in his encouragement to persevere, he encourages them to grow in the midst of suffering. And he says, imitate those, those through faith and patience, that, that will inherit what has been promised. And then he uses this reference to Abraham because they're Jews. They would all know the story of Abraham. He uses this reference of Abraham. Hey, remember Abraham? Remember his faith? Remember how God came through for Abraham? I want you to think about this maybe um, for just a moment. Think about this with me for a minute. 
Who, can you think about someone whose faith you want to imitate? I was thinking about just a couple questions. Who is someone that God placed in your life whose example is worth imitating? The writer of the Hebrews is saying, hey, I know it's hard. I know it's hard. So remember, remember that person. Think about that person, that life whose example is worth imitating. How has that person been example, an example of faith and, faith and patience to you? How has that person been an example of faith and patience to you? How has that person modeled ongoing partnering, partnership with God in the process of maturity? In the midst of the suffering, the writer is saying, hey, remember somebody whose faith is important. And so I'm asking you, whose faith, whose faith are you called to imitate? And lastly, how would you characterize the way and the why they pray? Can you think of someone? When I was in middle school, I met a gal named Audrey. Met her at church. And there are days where even now, I think about her and want to imitate her faith. So much so that when it was time for us to adopt, we named our kid after her. Who is someone that God placed in your life whose example is worth imitating? I was thinking about all these leaders yesterday at Fuel. All these kids running around, all these kids just having a blast. And there are these leaders who are just pouring their life out into these kids that are there. It's amazing to me that these adults would just give up their whole weekend. In fact, give up their whole lives to pour themselves out into the lives of a bunch of middle school kids and high school kids. Those are lives worth imitating. These next couple of verses are beautiful verses. Um, Verses 16 down through the end of the chapter, verse 20 says this, people swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Our hope enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, the Holy of Holies, where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. Jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Our hope is our salvation, and our hope is in Jesus, the holder, the giver of life and eternal life. The writer says hope twice. This hope 
that we might be greatly encouraged and that this hope might be the anchor of our soul, firm and secure in the midst of suffering, in the midst of falling away or wounds or sin or repentance or really hard theology. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. And the anchor of our souls is not found on this earth. When Jesus entered heaven at his ascension, he took our hope with him. Jesus is our hope anchored firmly in heaven, in the holy of holies, the place of God's presence. That's where our anchor is. And it's there where Jesus prays for you. It's there where Jesus intercedes for me, for us, for our kids. We know a lot about Jesus's posture. There's a couple of places in scripture where Jesus prays. Just want to mention two places real quick. The first we talked about last week in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was there where he prayed, take this cup from me. And he brings some friends along and he asks them to pray for him. And then in a posture of absolute dependence, he falls on his face and he says, but not my will, yours be done. And I can't help but think maybe this morning that's the prayer, maybe, for some of you. In light of all that you're facing, all that your family is facing, all that our neighborhood is facing, all that our nation is facing, all that the nations are facing, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. And the second prayer comes just real simply from the Sermon on the Mount. Our prayer lives are very intimate. My prayer life with the Lord is very intimate. As Lily said, it's a conversation. It's a place of vulnerability. The most intimate thing that a husband and wife can do, the most intimate thing that a husband and wife can do is to pray together. There's real intimacy in prayer. It's very individual. And yet when Jesus teaches us to pray, he marks it by this sort of communal invitation. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father, maybe that's the prayer today. That your will would be done in my marriage as in heaven. In my singleness as in heaven, in my hurt, in my suffering, as in heaven, in our neighborhood, in our kids at fuel, in my life on earth today, as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, he says, and forgive us our debts. This is how he teaches us to pray. As we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then this last part that was added later, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I want to invite you into a posture of prayer. And for these next couple of moments, just want us to be still. And however it is that you feel like you want to pray or that you're being led to pray, I want to give you the invitation to respond. And then in a couple of moments, uh, Sonny will come and lead us. And if you'd like to worship through the taking of communion or if you need somebody to pray with you or for you, there'll be some 
folks by the stairs back there, they'd be willing to pray with you or for you. Just want to give you the opportunity to just spend a few moments in prayer and in worship. So let's pray together.